Welcome back. Hopefully you're um, enjoying yourself so far uh, this morning. Just, just again, just want to give you a really big encouragement to stick around after the service if, if you can and uh, stay for a coffee. We're just so grateful to the staff here at Common and uh, the whole team at Morning Owl that own the cafe. Uh, they're just amazing. They actually, um, for the time being, they're actually gifting the coffee to us. We're not even having to pay for this as a church. It's just a, uh, one of the owners said to us, look, this is just a small way that we want to be able to help you out, which is nothing other than the favor of God. It's just absolutely incredible. So take advantage. Have a coffee afterwards with their permission and full green light. So um, stick around. We'd love to, um, to get to know you afterwards, particularly if this is your first Sunday here with us. We've been in a series as a church called Jesus, Con or King. We've been in this for a few months now, uh, really since we stepped into this venue. And we're looking at the Gospel of Mark. In the Bible, there are four books that really hone in on the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The whole Bible is about Jesus, but four books that really hone in at his life on earth. And the shortest of those is Mark. So we've been going through that together. We're at the beginning of chapter 2 now. So we're taking our time moving through it, but we're just loving this series so far and and being able to go through it at a a fairly slow pace. Uh, The joke has kind of been we'll be finished this series in about 75 years, so uh, stay uh, stay with us as a church for a while, and we might actually make it to the end of Mark someday. Uh, But for right now, we're in Mark chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read Mark chapter 2, verse 1, uh, through to the end of verse 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, the, the words will come up on the screen uh, here behind me. This is what it says in Mark chapter 2. And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Father, this morning we have not come to hear uh, the wisdom of, of, of the world, the wisdom of one pastor, uh, the wisdom of anyone else in this room. God, we want your wisdom this morning. And we know that ultimately that that has been uh, revealed through your Son, that he is wisdom, and that we know of him because of your word, your holy word. And I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you'd help me as I take us through these verses this morning. Spirit, I pray that you would speak, uh, that, uh, that every one of us would leave this morning knowing more of Jesus, knowing more of what he's done, knowing more of his grace. And uh, Jesus, I pray this for your glory this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start us off with a, a fairly simple Question, And it's an interesting time of year to ask this question when credit card uh, debt can tend to be high, when we're kind of in that uh, post-spending kind of hangover a little bit where we're looking at all the expenditure of Christmas and hosting people and all of that, when when resources can be a little bit tighter. I want to ask you this. What is your greatest need? 
What do you think is your greatest need? I suspect that if we asked that question to people across our city, we'd get a whole range of different answers. Some people might say things like, uh, my job. I need my job because my job provides me with money and that provides me with everything else. So my greatest need is my job. For other people, they might say it's health. For others at a certain stage of life, it might be saying, knowing, knowing that my retirement, right now my stage of life, knowing that my retirement is secure, that's my greatest need. For others, it might be, my greatest need is being able to be free, how I want to be free. Maybe it's at a, as an artist. Maybe it's uh, in a certain area of, of uh, culture, a different area of culture in the city. Maybe it's in their sexuality. It's just freedom. Freedom is my greatest need. I, I suspect if we kind of took a sample across the city, we might hear some of these answers and many, many more. When I was younger, I'll tell you what my greatest need was. It was hockey. <laughs> Simply that. My greatest need was hockey, and it was to be good at hockey. I wanted to be the best hockey player that was out there, so I remember my dad uh, waking me up at this time of the year in the middle of winter, waking me up some mornings at like 4.45 to get in the car and to go to the rink and to take power skating lessons uh, that he said, look, do you want to do them? And foolishly, I said yes, not knowing what time of the day they were going to be given. And off I went, because I wanted to be the greatest hockey player ever. And then as I grew up and I got into high school, it wasn't so much hockey. It's just I wanted, I wanted to have friends. I wanted to be popular. I wanted people in the high school to know my name and to want to be friends with me. And then after that, I didn't go to university right away. So it was, I needed a job. The biggest thing that I needed was a job then. And then I got fired from that job. So the biggest thing that I needed was a backup plan because I didn't have the job anymore. And, and my needs changed. And I suspect for all of us in this room, if we look back on our life and how we would answer that question, what is my greatest need? We'd realize that over life, the way we answer that question changes. Our answer to that question changes because we're human. And we can be fickle sometimes. And, and often what we decide is our greatest need, if we just give it a few months or a few years, well, that changes quite a bit. Now, here's the thing. This book, the Bible, and the God that you read about in this book actually knows what your true, lifelong greatest need is. He knows the true answer to that question that does not shift depending on what stage of life you may be at and depending on circumstances around you. And these verses that we're looking at this morning really get to the heart of that. What is the greatest need that we have? What is the greatest need that we have? We'll come on to that in a few minutes. But we can often confuse needs with wants. All the things that I just had in that list that I... Uh, kind of reeled off for you in my own childhood, you know, needing to be a really good hockey player, needing to have popularity at high school, needing a job or needing a university education or qualification or whatever it might be. You know, in reality, these aren't needs. They're not needs like oxygen is a need. I need oxygen up here. I need my heart to be pumping right now as I stand in front of you. Those are needs. These other things that I've listed off are wants. But we live in a culture that is so good at blinding us to uh, the, the differences between wants and needs. And we often are left uh, coming to the conclusion that things that we want, or sorry, things that we need are, are actually just things that we want. And we don't actually need them. Over Christmas, I watched a great documentary on Netflix. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's called The Minimalists. And uh, it's based on a podcast, and there's some books that have come out as well. But there's a documentary on Netflix about um, two guys that were climbing the corporate ladder in America. I mean, they were they were going for it. They were getting the promotions. They were getting hauled in for the meetings. And like, hey, you're doing really well. We want to advance you to this salary level and this type of seniority. They were doing all of it, climbing all of the ladders. But they were just finding that their lives 
in, even with the pursuit of all of these things that they had believed, if I pursue this and if I achieve this, I will then have my needs met. I will then have the life that I want. But they were finding that it was just disappointing them. Every step didn't lead them to that fulfillment. Or if it did, it was very temporal. I mean, very temporal, like hours or days. You know, you go out to the car dealership and spend the money on the brand new car and that euphoria. But within a few days, it's, it's, it's gone. You know, has anybody ever got a brand new iPhone? You know that feeling you get for the first few hours? Or maybe the first few days until you get your first bill? (laughs) It's kind of that sort of feeling, right? And in this documentary, they're looking at different things like that, and they're talking uh, to different psychologists and different experts in the field. It's, it's It's secular, they're not approaching it from a faith background at all. And they're talking about how we can confuse needs and wants. And I went onto their website the other day. They've got a short essay on the website, and it's called this. It's called The Un-American Dream. And we might be quick as Canadians to want to pick on our neighbors to the south and say, oh, the American dream, that's, that doesn't make sense. But if we're honest, the Canadian dream is not really that different, is it? We're not all that different. But this is what this short essay on the website says. It's called The Un-American Dream. It says this, The American Dream. The white picket fence, the large suburban home, the luxury car, the big screen TVs glowing in multiple rooms, the safe, reasonable nine to five, the corner office, the suit and tie, the white collar pride, sound like a city that we might be a little bit familiar with, maybe? The blue collar pride, the weekends off, the paid holidays, the occasional vacation, the fringe benefits in exchange for the daily grind. The nose to the grindstone, the rush hour traffic, the punching the clock, the cubicle farms, the spreadsheet eye strain, the much anticipated lunch break, the inbox overflow, the arbitrary goals, the late nights at the office, the empty platitudes, the office gossip, the productivity, the downsizing, the doing more with less, the mounds of bills, the second job, the credit card spending, the debt, the second mortgage, the beer gut, the midlife crisis, the retirement at 65, the volatile stock market, the retirement at 67, or 72, or 75, the death before retirement, the unyielding tiredness, the emptiness, the depression, the unshakable discontent. They conclude this little essay by saying this, you can keep your American dream, give us back our time, our freedom, and our lives. It's powerful. And as I was watching this documentary, The thing that really struck me that I actually thought was quite tragic about it, even though as I was watching it, there were so many things that I agreed with. The thought actually ran through my mind of some Sunday morning just getting us all in here. We're just going to put Netflix on some morning and watch this documentary. There was so much good stuff in the documentary, but the reality is this, is that they were exchanging the pursuit of everything with the pursuit of nothing. They were trading one false gospel that they were recognizing was a false gospel. What I mean by that is it was false good news. And they were exchanging it for another false gospel. And I believe what these men and others that are really getting absorbed in this, even though there's much that I agree with, I really mean that, but I believe that if you pursue minimalism with everything that you have, it too will disappoint you. It too eventually will make you realize, actually, this is not fulfilling either. So what's, what's the third option? What's the, what's the right way according to Scripture? Is there, is there a better way? Well, again, these verses that we're looking at this morning, I believe, reveal a better way. But I think it also helps us understand that we so often confuse our wants with our needs. The story we're looking at this morning in Mark chapter 2 is about two different types of people who are confronted by Jesus about what they think that they need. 
So Jesus has returned to Capernaum. This is a small town at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it's where Peter lives. And it's really Peter's story that we're reading in Mark's Gospel. It is called Mark because Mark is the one who's really recording it. But it's really Peter's um, experience of meeting Jesus and walking with Jesus. And Jesus has come to Peter's hometown. Now, there's a bit of debate out there when, it's, when Mark says that Jesus was at home. We don't know if Jesus actually owned his own home or if he was staying at Peter's home. Uh, most scholars think that he was just staying at Peter's home. Uh, and I've actually got a photo to show you because uh, Natalia and I, uh, many years ago, were actually able to visit this part of the world. It was quite incredible. I know the sun's coming in that back window really strong and you can't see the television too well. But this, this is Capernaum. Capernaum is very, very small. The, uh, the, the, the walls of the houses all connect with each other. And that's what you're seeing here in the lower part of the photos, these, these stone walls. And this spaceship-looking thing up at the top is actually a, a Catholic church that has been built on top of what uh, archaeologists believe and scholars believe is Peter's home. Uh, there's a Catholic church that has been built on top of it. It's quite incredible. When you go in, there's a glass floor. And you can walk and you can look down into Peter's floor. It's kind of cool. It's, it's, it's a much uh, different sort of version than the glass wall that we have here. It'd be kind of creepy if we built this church over my house with a glass floor looking down on me and Natalia and the kids. Let's not do that, all right? But they've done it here and uh, you can go and visit that. This is Capernaum. It's tiny. Like, it's tiny. I'm not exaggerating. This photo is about a third of this little town. You know, if I were to extend it to the left and the right, that would be the entirety of of Capernaum. Small place. So this is a setting. This is where this is going on. Jesus has come back there, and the crowds learn that he's back at home or in Peter's home. Now, Jesus had been doing some miracles. He had actually done some miracles right there in Capernaum not long before. There was this incredible thing that happened in the temple there. And then he'd been going around different parts of the region. And these, the, the, the talk of these miracles had been spreading. The talk of what had been happening was kind of traveling around the region. And people in Capernaum were talking about this. They were gossiping about it. It was unlike anything that they had ever seen. It was unlike anything that they had ever heard about before. So a crowd gathers at this home, this little home. Remember, this little home. A crowd gathers at this little home and just pack into it and pack around the doors. And they pack around the windows. Now, off in the distance come four men carrying a stretcher, carrying like an an older version of a bed. And on it is lying a man who is paralyzed. And these four men are carrying this man who's paralyzed and they look at this house because they're thinking, we just need to get our friend to Jesus. We need to get him there. But we can't because look at the crowd. There's no way in. There's no doorway that is clear. And there's no way that any of these people are going to move out of the way because they probably have their own wants and their own needs. And they've heard about Jesus. They've heard about this miracle worker. They're not going to give up their space. They're not going to just politely let somebody else to the front of the line. What can we do? So they come up with a really creative idea. I don't know if you can see at the bottom of the photo, but the walls of these houses, they were made of stone, but the very tops of them, uh, they weren't quite as solid that way. And we learn from reading in Luke, in Luke chapter 5, that there were actually clay tiles on the roof. So they come up with the idea, hey, if we can get up on that roof, we can actually remove these clay tiles and we can lower our friend down through the roof. That'll work. So up they go and they remove some of the tiles and they lower their friend down through the roof of this house. Now, there's a lot of speculation out there about whether or not uh, Peter, we know that Peter was married because we know uh, that he had a mother-in-law who Jesus healed in Mark chapter 1. But we don't know if Peter's uh, wife was alive at this time or not. Some people think she may have passed away. Some people think she was alive. 
But imagine in your house, imagine you using your church, your house for church purposes, and imagine somebody showing up and saying, God is doing something here, and they rip the roof off your house so that they can lower somebody in. You want to talk about part of the cost of following Jesus. We can get really spiritual about that, can't we? Like, oh, I, you know, there's some things that I need to change in my life. These believers, these people that were following Jesus or first starting to walk them, literally had the roof ripped off their house so that people could be carried to Jesus. Now, what I love about this and what I, what I don't want us to miss is this is a beautiful picture of the church in action. Jesus sees this incredible expression of faith. Jesus sees this incredible expression of faith and he responds. But before we look at how Jesus responds, I want us to look at this, this picture of the church in action. These four men and, their, and the determination that they show to get their friend to Jesus is a pointer is a pointer to the mission that God has called his people to. I'm going to say that again. These four men and the the determination that they showed to get their friend to Jesus is a pointer to the mission that God has called his people to. What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to flip back into the Old Testament, some older parts of the Bible for a few minutes. In Exodus chapter 19, God says this about his people. He says, You will be for me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Israel, the story of the Old Testament, some of the room will be, some of us won't be. But if you're familiar with that story, you know that Israel had many priests. And the role of the priest was to intercede uh, between the nation and God. It was to intercede on behalf of the nation to God. So the priest would bring the sacrifices. The priest would spend time in prayer, in, in rituals, and in making sure that they were cleansed in certain ways. In all of these things, they were doing it not just for their own good individually, but for the good of the nation around them. But God doesn't say, you will be for me a kingdom with priest. He says, you will be a kingdom of priest. God's call on Israel God's call on the first people that he chooses and that he calls is that all of them would intercede on behalf of all of the nations around them. That was God's plan for them. You will be for me a kingdom of priests working for the good of all of those around you. And Peter has this in mind very much when he speaks in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says this, but you are a chosen race. And then he uses this language, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. He's not speaking to priests. That's not who he's writing to. He's writing to the church. Church, you are a royal priesthood. Friends, here this morning, not just if you're part of Grace City Church, that's, that's not the focus of this this morning. If you're here this morning and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are a son or a daughter of God, you are part of this royal priesthood this morning with full rights and full permissions to come before God, even right now. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, the mission of the people of God, our mission as a church, is to stop at nothing to carry people to Jesus. It's to stop at nothing to carry people to Jesus. That's our role. In a few weeks, we're having a pastoral training weekend. Our life group leaders are going to be there. Our life group apprentices are going to be there. If you're here this morning and you feel that God has just put something on your heart for caring for people in the church, let us know. Let your life group leader know because we'll uh, we'll see what we can do to get you out to that weekend as well. But I want you to know that our aim in pastoral care in this church is not to fix you. And it's not that I would be fixed. Our aim in pastoral care is to carry people to Jesus. 
is to carry people to the one who is the healer. We can't do the healing on our own. You can't sit down in my living room and I just, I'll just spout off a bunch of good advice that I've read in a few books and that'll fix everything. No, my role as a pastor and the role of other pastors in this church is to point you and to carry you to Christ because he is the one that will bring that healing to you. He is the one that will bring uh, that restoration to you and to your life. I want us to look at the compassion of Christ, the, the way that Christ responds in this situation. Seeing their faith and being moved by it, Jesus responds to the man on the stretcher. He says this, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Imagine being there. Imagine being one of the people in this crowd gathered around the window or the doors of this house. And you're watching this happen. And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is to this man, this paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I don't know about you, but I'd be tempted to go, "Uh, Jesus, there's something wrong, because clearly you're not seeing what's going on here. Clearly you've not seen that there's a man who is paralyzed, and his friends have kind of carried him up to the roof of of this house. Maybe, Jesus, if you would just look up. Notice how you can see the stars up there. Notice there's a little bit of a draft in the room right now. See, they've removed the roof, and they've lowered this man down because he's a paralytic. He can't walk. So why are you telling him his sins are forgiven? Who cares? The guy needs to be healed physically. What's going on with this? Why is it that Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven, instead of saying first, Man, rise up and walk. I mean, that, that, surely that's what he wants. Surely that's what he needs. Surely he needs to be physically healed. That's his greatest need, isn't it? He's on a stretcher, for goodness sake. Surely his greatest need is to be healed, to no longer be paralyzed. You can imagine some of the people that are going, Jesus, we've heard that you do these miracles. Come on, do one now. Do a trick for us. Come on, look, it's right here. It's right in front of you. Do something. Impress us. Come on, Jesus. Jesus knew the man's greater need. Being healed from his physical immobility was not it. And believe it or not, it wasn't even close. In light of eternity, being paralyzed wasn't even close to his greatest need. His body would last maybe maybe 70, 80, maybe more years, but his soul would last forever. And his soul was sick. His soul, much more than his body, was paralyzed and was in need of restoration, was in need of healing much more than he was physically in his body. His soul needed to be healed. His greatest need ran much deeper than his legs or his arms or his, any inabilities that he had in his physical self. Friends, what you think might be your greatest need, even what you've come in here this morning, even as you've listened to the first part of the service, maybe there's the offering bucket's gone around, you've thought, I really wish that I could be involved in that, I wish I could step in generosity, but I just can't. I need money. I need provision. Whatever maybe uh, crossed your mind, whatever you think may be your greatest need, look, it might be blinding you to the truth of what your greatest need actually is. What you think might be your greatest need might be blinding you to the truth of what your greatest need actually is. In the crowd, there were some scribes. We read about these scribes that were in the crowd. These scribes uh, were men who were very educated. They were responsible uh, for studying the scriptures, for transcribing it, for writing uh, kind of commentaries on it as well. They, they were the, the, the religious professionals. They were among the religious professionals of the age. They were the keepers of the scripture. And they're watching this and they were not happy at all watching what has taken place here because they respond in their hearts kind of quietly. They respond saying, why is Jesus saying this? What authority does he have to say this? He's blaspheming. 
Because they would have been thinking about things like Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, where the Bible says, The Lord also has put away your sin. This is something that a prophet named Nathan says to David when David sins in a massive way. I mean, I mean, just huge way that you can read in that chapter and in the chapters leading up to it. But Nathan says this to him, and God speaks through Nathan saying, The Lord also has put away your sin. And the significance of this is that it's God and God alone who can forgive sin. It's only God. So that's why the scribes are so worked up. When Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven, the scribes flip out because they know that Jesus is making a big claim. Jesus is claiming to be God. That's huge. The ramifications of that are massive. Only the Lord can do that. And Jesus, by doing it himself, is claiming to be Lord. You know, it's possible to be a professional religious person and have a heart that is completely cold towards Christ. We see that so clearly in Mark chapter 2. I was asked by a friend a few weeks ago, uh, for us as a church, you know, who do, do we have anybody on staff? They weren't asking it in, in a way that was, you know, do, do you have anyone with professional qualifications? Because I'm only going to come if you do. That was not their intention at all. They were just curious. Do you have anybody who's done formal theological studies, you know, with, with the church doing the teaching? And I said, no, in terms of a formal way, kind of accredited, accredited degrees, no, we don't. I'll be honest with you. I don't. Matt doesn't. Uh, Andrew's done some, some uh, training at Bible college. Uh, but it wouldn't be like a, uh, an MDiv type program or something really formal that way. And I'll tell you why. It's because I believe with all my heart that just having that qualification does not automatically mean that your heart is warm and open to Christ. Because we see clearly in Mark chapter 2 that you can be a professional religious person and have a heart that is absolutely hard towards Him. That rejects Him. And that rejects His Lordship. Now I'm not saying that Formal study and these sort of things are wrong. That is not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that it's not enough. It's not the way. It's not salvation in itself. It can be helpful. Yes, absolutely it can be helpful. But it's not salvation. That's a work of grace. That's something that God has to do within us. What about miracles as well? These scribes saw and you know, they're seeing miracles happen. We'll get onto that in just a moment. They see this incredible thing happen, but we don't read that the scribes then suddenly have this open heart. They even see a miracle happen and still their heart is absolutely closed to Jesus. Friends, you can be a professional religious person. You can see miracles happening around you. All of those things, as great as they can be, are not enough. They don't equal salvation. And witnessing these things does not equal salvation. Having those qualifications does not equal salvation in itself. Jesus, knowing what these men are thinking, he, he asks this. He says, why are you questioning this? What is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? Now, the obvious answer is that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because somebody can just say it and we, we can't look inside somebody's heart or their soul and kind of know what's going on there, can we? But if somebody says, rise up and walk, take up your bed and walk, we can test that a little bit. Because if somebody says that, if that was happening right here at the front of the room and I said that or somebody else said that, we would know in the moment whether or not it happens. So we know which one is easier. We know which one is easier to say. So then in verse 12, Jesus says to the man, uh, sorry, he says to the man to take up his bed and walk. And verse 12 says, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed. Friends, we're looking at this series. We're looking at this question. Jesus, con or king? Was Jesus who he said he was? Or is Jesus just a con man? Or did people just kind of make up lies about him? What is it? And in all of this, in these verses, Jesus gives us three clear indications that he is king. 
He gives us three clear pointers to his divinity. The first one is that he forgives the man's sin. Son, your sins are forgiven. The second is that he reads the minds of the scribes. He knows their thoughts. And the third one is is that he physically heals. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. These scribes who are there, they cling to the law. They think that they need the law. The the paralyzed man might have thought that I I just need physically to be healed. The scribes thought we need the law. We need to be known as the experts of the law. That's what we need. That's what our self-preservation is found in. We need to be the experts of the law. They cling to the law to save them when the entire purpose of the law was to point them to the very man who was standing in front of them. And they're blind to it. Friends, the purpose of the law in the Bible is to point us to Christ, the only one who has kept it perfectly. And these scribes totally miss it right there in front of them. So as we close, what is the right response? We've seen an example of the wrong response. The scribe's response is the wrong one. What is the right response? I love this. I love this about these verses. The right response is so simple. It's so easy. It's so childlike. It's so straightforward to walk into. The right response is what we read at the very end of these verses that we're looking at this morning in Mark chapter 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them. And it's this, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. They were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. What is the right response to Christ? It's just amazement. It's wonder. It's awe. It's looking at this king who says to a sinner, remember this paralytic, we might, we might have pity on him because of his physical condition, but he was a sinner. And King Jesus looks at him and says, what's the first word out of Jesus' mouth? Son. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've not accepted Christ, you've not had the penalty for your sins, you've not made the decision to say, Jesus, I receive that you took that penalty on the cross. Still, Jesus says to you this morning, Son, daughter, I've done it for you. What amazing grace. What amazing grace. I'm going to invite Emily to come and get set back up to lead us in um, some songs. But we're going to do that as we have the rest of our service here this morning in a couple different ways. We're going to, uh, together, we are going to uh, respond in amazement and in awe and in wonder of this glorious king who says to a sinner, son, who speaks to a paralytic and says, rise up, who shows grace to all those around him, whose grace is enough for you this morning. We're going to respond uh, by singing together. We're also going to respond by taking communion together. We're going to respond by remembering what Jesus did on the cross in our place, uh, bearing the penalty that we deserved, dying the death that we deserved. And if anyone did not deserve to be up there, it was Jesus. But he went there in our place. So in a few minutes, um, over to my left, to your right, uh, I'll invite you to come and take communion with us. There's bread, and then if, you, uh, if it serves you to have gluten-free, there's some rice crackers here on the left. Uh, the, 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 the left side is the wine, the right side is the grape juice. Just have whatever you would like this morning. If you're here this morning and you have a relationship with Jesus, come and enjoy this meal this morning. Come and enjoy the grace of God again this morning. You know, revealed in its fullness through Christ on the cross.